True story. Working on strategy with a client, an organization that celebrated the art and cultural heritage of a particular community. My colleague and I were excited to present findings and ideas. The problem? We were presenting to the wrong board. I don't mean we went to the wrong building or anything. The board was all white, largely male, and not a single board member was either a member of the community the organization celebrated or deeply understood that community in a way that drove their passion for this work. I called it out in the room, and to make my point, I said, okay, imagine an African-American community center with an all-white board. I figured this is a layup to actually educate them, right? Much to my horror, one board member answered quickly, well, what would be wrong with that? Not a single other board member challenged her. It was clear that our vision for the future of this organization would not fly. Our vision could only be a reality if the board and staff reflected the communities the organization served. We've clearly got to start with the simple question, why does it matter? It might be obvious to you, but we've got to make sure that the playing field is level. Then we need to tease that out. What does it mean? What could it look like? I mean, if you serve preschoolers, you're not going to hand preschoolers fiduciary responsibilities, are you? I mean, you get the idea. And then once we talk about what it looks like, we need to offer you some actionable steps you can take. Does that sound like, like a daunting conversation? No, not after you listen to Whitley Richards. I learned a lot from this conversation, and I know you will too. Greetings and welcome to Nonprofits Are Messy. I'm your host, Joan Gary, founder of the Nonprofit Leadership Lab, where we help smaller nonprofits thrive. I'm also a strategic advisor for executive directors and boards of larger nonprofits. I'm a frequent keynote speaker, a blogger, and an author on all things leadership and management. You can learn more at joangary.com. I think of myself as a woman with a mission to fuel the leadership of the nonprofit sector. My goal with each episode is to dig deep into an issue I know that nonprofit leaders are grappling with by finding just the right person to offer you advice and insights. Today is no exception. Whitley Richards is the Chief Program Officer of Cause Strategy Partners, a social enterprise specializing in nonprofit board matching and training. Your ears just perked up, didn't they? She oversees all existing nonprofit board placement and training services globally and leads the development of new programs. She's offered strategic counsel and advice to scores of nonprofits and individuals around the country, including facilitating the placement of nearly 2,000 professionals onto nonprofit governing boards. She's provided consulting services to a number of Fortune 500 companies and professional services firms and led engagements placing C-suite and senior executives on boards of directors. She's designed, built, and led an initiative focused on strengthening diversity, equity, and inclusion in nonprofit governance and among nonprofit staff teams. Her professional mission, I always love it when people have professional missions, is to live at the intersection of the public and private sectors working to foster effective, equitable, and inclusive leadership. Now you tell me that you are not interested in what Whitley Richards has to say. I am. Hi, Whitley. How you doing? Hi, Joan. Thank you so much for that kind introduction. Thank you for having me, too. I'm so honored to be here. So we have a lot to learn from you today, Whitley. Let's start with something simple. You are in the business of nonprofit board matching and training. I know I am not the only one that wants to hear more. Tell us about cause strategies. <laughs> sure. Thank you for the invitation. Cause Strategy Partners is all about nonprofit boards and good governance. Our mission is to inspire the world's professionals to serve their cause. And we do that by connecting a diverse network of talented and really passionate professionals to nonprofit boards. We primarily do that through our signature program called Board Lead, which is a board recruitment, placement, training, and support program that we run across the U.S. and a couple of locations outside of the U.S., and um, that is actually offered entirely free of charge to the nonprofits that we partner with. 
In fact, our spring matching period is coming up in February, and we're always open to learning about nonprofit interest and being connected to the professionals that we work with. But in addition to board placement, we do a lot of work training nonprofit boards because we know that well-trained boards are much more likely to drive strong impact. And so that's really core to our mission and something that I'm really passionate about, particularly as we think about diversity, equity, and inclusion. So All of this can be found on our website, causestrategypartners.com, and always happy to connect with those who are interested in learning more. So for those interested in learning more, just a quick question, are you a nonprofit or are you a for-profit enterprise? And maybe just a quick snapshot of like sort of the business model. Sure, happy to. So we are not a nonprofit organization. We're very proud to be a B Corp, which means that we have two bottom lines. We are a for-profit organization, but we also have a mission bottom line, um, which allows us to pursue social impact, the, the change that we're looking to see in the world, which is really to elevate nonprofit governance in the social goods sector and to, to do that alongside some of our business goals. So our model, particularly for our board lead program, is that we work with large corporations that are looking to train their employees and engage them in nonprofit board service. And it's our corporate partners that actually fully underwrite our programs and allow us to offer them free of charge to nonprofit organizations. Beyond that matching component, all of the training that we offer to the individuals that move through our programs and the nonprofits themselves is also free. So one of the most common things I think I hear from nonprofit leaders, either my coaching clients or members of our nonprofit leadership lab is there, where do I find board members? And one of the things that I've learned about your organization is that corporations are actually quite interested in their people being on nonprofit boards. And I wonder if you want to just spend a minute and Offer us the picture inside that corporation's head about why that is meaningful to them. Because I do feel like we come from a place of scarcity and not abundance when it comes to board recruitment. And and corporations actually are into this. They are. They are. They're really excited about it. They're building programs around it. Those that have the resources to do this and to invest in their employees in this way really see nonprofit board service as a leadership development opportunity, as an extension of their community impact strategy. And so it's in the interest of both the the company and the individual employees that are engaging in board placement programs to, to do this work. You know, we oftentimes connect with one of two teams through our work. We connect with the CSR team, the the team internally within the company that's thinking about how that company is engaging in its local community, how it's supporting community initiatives to upskill community members so that they might be able to work with that corporation, how it's thinking about the environment and its impact on the environment and kind of its, its social impact as well. Is a community better off because that company is present or not? And then, or we talk to HR teams, those that are interested in investing in their employees through leadership development programs, through opportunities for them to build new skills, to network, to apply their existing skills in a different operating environment. And nonprofit board service is an excellent opportunity for them to be able to do that. And so CSR teams and HR teams at these corporations are oftentimes collaborating and advancing many of their goals at one time. We kind of sit at the intersection as well. At Cause Strategy Partners, we're also connected to nonprofits like yours who are eager to connect to corporate resources, to build networks, to bring on new specific skill sets onto the board, skill sets that are widely employed at these corporations. And and we have developed a system to be able to connect those professionals, bringing those skill sets and experiences to nonprofit boardrooms, but not just those skill sets, but I think one misconception about individuals who work in the private sector is that they automatically come from places of privilege, that they don't have a connection to the work that the organization is doing, and that they're interested in pursuing financial security or even abundance over social impact. And something that I've learned in my time at Cause Strategy Partners is that that's really not true. We, through our program, connect with 
first-generation college students, immigrants, individuals who are coming from really difficult upbringings, who have worked their way through systems to arrive at the, the place that they currently are and are looking to give back to community members that they really see themselves in. And it's really wonderful to make the connection between those two worlds. Well, and I just, I do not think that our sector markets board service very well. I think we because we come from a place of, I need to put a butt in that seat, that we don't really think about what incredible benefit board service accrues to those who serve. And I, I think you did just a great job of talking about that. So let's, let's actually take this phrase, our board must reflect the community it serves. What is it that you, how, what is it you mean when you say that? Yeah, we hear this phrase all the time. We conduct interviews with hundreds of nonprofits across the U.S. each year for our programs. And this has to be one of the top three things that we hear from nonprofit executive directors and board chairs when we ask the question, so what are you, how are you looking to develop your board? Who are you looking to bring into the boardroom? But I think that this phrase, our board must reflect the communities we serve, has become a proxy for we want to bring more BIPOC individuals into our boardroom. Because when we probe for, okay, what does it mean for your organization to reflect your community? Oftentimes, Boards really struggle to follow up. I think a lot of times we're not really speaking in definite terms about the communities that we're serving. And until we know our communities, we can't really ensure that we're accomplishing the goal of having the community reflected. So then we end up kind of checking boxes and saying, you know, this, I guess we need to have this experience represented in the community in, on our board because technically there's somebody in our community who has that identity. I've actually had nonprofits ask, you know, what's the right amount of racial diversity we should have on our board? What's best practice in terms of the ratio of people of color to white board members? And it's impossible to answer that question with a blanket statement. I mean, even thinking about the example that you shared at the beginning of the episode, could we give the same answer to an organization serving the African-American community and one serving the Irish community. And more importantly, is that even the right question to be asking? Yeah, so I, I do think that there's real value in having boards reflect the communities that they serve, But I and I actually think that that's one of a board's core purposes, but we just have to be thoughtful about what that means, and that starts with actually really understanding who are our communities, and, and not always defining them necessarily by our mission or by the services that we're providing, but also considering the ways in which community members talk about their own identities and talk about what's important to them so that we can be really thoughtful and inclusive when thinking about then who do we need to have, what perspectives and voices do we need to have represented in the boardroom. So I'm going to play a game with me, Whitley. You sure. are the chair of the nominations committee of the nonprofit XYZ.org. How would you begin to work with your committee to do that kind of exploration that you're describing? What, that, what might that look like so that nonprofit leaders who are listening can sort of put their arms around that? Yeah, it's a really great question. Well, for one thing, and this is kind of responding to your question, but one thing I want to note up front is that it's really important for the nominating committee itself to be reflective of a wide variety of identities and experiences, if that's possible for the board. As the body that's deciding who feels like a good fit for the board, we really want to be able to draw on a variety of perspectives and reduce the amount of bias that is present in that process. And one of the in ways you in one of the ways you can do that, I'm sorry to interrupt you, Whitley, but one of the ways you can do that is, right, because I hear that too, right, is that I don't have a diverse nominations committee. So you can have people that are on your nominations committee who are not on your board. Yep. Right? Light bulb goes off. Yes. And, and by the way, it's such a wonderful way to bring someone closer to the organization who gets to hear that this is something you care about. And so, so make the board committees should be chaired by board members, but populated. I believe it's actually a really great strategy to include non-board members on your different committees, especially if you are not reflecting the communities you serve. So anyway, I didn't mean, I'm sorry I interrupted. Carry on. 
No, that's a great, that's a great idea. It's also a really great way to tap in board community members that might not be appropriate for board service. So for example, if you have, if you work with young people, kids in in high school or middle school, I mean, having them on a committee, being able to speak to some of those decisions is really key for helping to build trust between the board and the organization. In terms of how to kind of advance this conversation about who is our community, a few ideas here. If your organization has the capacity to collect data on the community. I think data is really important here. So understanding how community members define, identify themselves, what they consider to be very important among the services that your organization is providing. Also thinking about disparate outcomes between different de- demographic groups in your, in your programs. Thinking about who are we not doing as good of a job at serving and, and therefore who might we want to bring into the boardroom so that we can get some perspective on how we can do this better. So data is one thing. I think Honestly, education, seeking out training on thinking about how board members can actively engage with community members, maintaining a connection to the community that the organization is serving. I think when there's a disconnect and there's a lot of distance between the board and kind of the on the ground work, the board just really doesn't have a sense of who they're working with. And that leaves so much room for the board to define for itself who who else needs to be in the boardroom, as opposed to that being responsive to the work that's happening on the ground. One of the things that I, I often talk about board meetings being the biggest missed opportunities in nonprofit organizations because they are something to be endured rather than <laughs> rather than having a real purpose. And this is a, a great opportunity Think about, so I have this, I have this equation, inform plus enrich plus engage equals ignite. And the enrich part is exactly what Whitley is talking about. So imagine that your nominations committee is working with the board chair or with the executive director and they're designing the board meeting and they say, it would be great if we could bring someone in who could enrich us about who our work touches or what are the big obstacles, right? Some of those kinds of things. And and, and an outsider is always good because it just, it, it could be someone from the community you serve, but someone who can really bring it to life in a way that accrues benefit back to the nominations committee can be a really, it, it, it doesn't have to be an education process just for the nominations committee. And when you enrich your board, they have so much more skin in the game. So much more. The way that we talk about it at Cause Strategy Partners is keeping your board spiritually aligned, almost taking this element of what drew us to the organization in the first place and making sure that we are constantly feeding it and reminding ourselves of why two-hour board meetings on a Wednesday evening after a really long day of work is worth our time and our full attention. So let's talk a little bit about, you know, I think in my open, I posed these three questions. And the first one stemmed from something that you said when we met, that most boards don't want to do the work that is required to build a board that reflects the communities the organization serves. And I generally find that people are willing to do hard work when they really get the why behind it. And do you think that when you think about organizations you've worked with, that were didn't seem willing to do the hard work. What was the obstacle? Was the obstacle, at, at least in part, like a lack of understanding about why it mattered? I think so. I think that's a that's a part of it. And I made that statement not because I don't believe that boards have good intentions here, because building a board that reflects the community that we serve, we're centering DEI in our conversations and our processes and our work involves a lot of really uncomfortable ongoing change. And I think that that work, which oftentimes isn't linear and isn't clear, can be really exhausting for this voluntary group of individuals who are drawn to the mission of the organization and not the messiness of board service. And so, yes, it's incredibly important to underscore why this work is essential, and I'll do that. I think that the other reason why boards aren't willing to do the work is because they don't, it is actually not that they're not willing to, but they don't really understand exactly 
where to start? I think there's there's just so much information out there. There's a fear of failure, of making mistakes. And so it's easier to kind of coast, you know, organizations have been able to talk about the incredible impact that they've been able to drive for so many years before this conversation about DEI came up. Why do we need to start talking about it now? So in response to that, and I'll broaden this beyond board development and board composition, a commitment to diversity, equity, and inclusion, in in my opinion, is really inseparable from effective governance. You know, we hear a lot about diverse teams arriving at better outcomes, that we should work to center inclusion because it's a powerful tool for ensuring that we're actually able to reap the benefits of having a diverse team. And all of that is really important. In the boardroom, being able to draw from a diversity of perspectives, including those coming from the communities that we serve, really committing to sharing power by centering equity in all of our processes and decisions is really going to reduce the likelihood that we cause harm. And I think for me, that's my motivator for continuing to do this work. I don't think anyone of us joins a nonprofit board to cause harm to the communities that we wish to serve. But without centering these values, the chances of us causing harm is much higher. Um, You know, boards are a small group of people making decisions that affect the lives of a much larger group of individuals. And in some cases, board members are part of that community. In many cases, they're not. And so we need to make sure that we have the information that we need and the processes that we need to combat our biases to really expose us to new ideas, challenge our thinking, so that we can really fulfill our jobs as board members to ensure the public's trust in our organizations. And that's where our our name trustees come from. It's all about, can the community trust this organization? And as a board, the reputation of the organization is, and maintaining that is our most important priority. So just riffing on that for a moment, I often talk about when I talk with boards, or even with executive directors, and I'm coaching them, I often say that we don't do a good enough job of indicating and making it really clear that a trustee has a very important job. And that people who are drawn to board service like to do important jobs. Yeah. <laughs> right? I mean, right, so sort of, you know, everybody's everybody's had that experience where they've heard someone say, oh, my nominations chair told somebody in the in the pipeline this is not a heavy lift for a board service, right? I'm a type A personality. I'm used to getting A's on my book reports. Like I, I, I'm, I'm not signing up. I'm signing up for the AP class. And right. so, you know, for better or for worse. And so the idea that this is an important job and that what you just said, and here's where I'm getting to, is what you just said is I can't do this important job unless I do this. Right, it's not something we should really do this. It's if I'm going to be an excellent trustee, and by the way, I didn't come to be a B minus trustee, I came to be an A trustee. Then part of what's being an A trustee is centering inclusion, right, and making sure that we are looking at the communities we serve and the impact that we have in a three dimensional, completely inclusive kind of way. Right. Yeah, it's so, it's really interesting because I think that nonprofit board members often come to the nonprofit boardroom expecting to, with an, with an idea about what nonprofit board service will be like, you know, showing up to board meetings, offering input here, maybe doing a project on the side. And when we talk to executive directors and board chairs, their understanding of what those expectations are are completely different. I did a training one time where I asked nonprofits to these executive directors to describe their most impactful board member, their superstar board member. And their response was, well, this board member is easily contactable. Like they will respond to my message when I reach out to them. This person shows up. This person just has an energy and excitement for our work that some other board members don't have. And it's none of them mention, you know, this board member is writing us a $50,000 check every year, or this board member, you know, is the, has been voluntold to chair this committee and they didn't decline. It's all about kind of how board members are showing up. And I think a commitment to DEI demonstrates that board members understand that this isn't just about meetings. It's not just about meeting, you know, a 
very specific fiduciary responsibilities. It's about the health and the success of the organization. And that can't be possible without centering DE&I. I also think if you go around a board table and you ask people, okay, you're a person who could be on any number of boards, any number of boards, be lucky to have you. Why are you on this board? If they can't actually answer that question with a high degree of passion, energy, and enthusiasm, I wouldn't guess that they'd be around for the next term, right? Is they have to be, they have to be lit up about this particular cause or societal problem or what, or this particular form of art, whatever it might be. And when they are, and only when they are, are they going to be ready, willing, and able to do hard things? Yeah. yeah. Why do you find, Joan, that so many people step onto boards without being willing to do those hard things? The Nonprofit Leadership Lab is led by Joan Gary and is the world's best online community for leaders of small nonprofits. Learn how to raise more money, build the board of your dreams, grow a large audience of supporters, and so much more. To learn more and request an invitation to become a member, please go to nonprofitleadershiplab.com slash podcast. That's nonprofitleadershiplab.com slash podcast. So we are having a conversation about, it's a, com- it's a conversation about boards reflecting the communities they serve. It's a conversation about centering DEI in thinking about board composition. And we're having this conversation with Whitley Richards, who's the chief program officer of Cause Strategy Partners, a social enterprise specializing in nonprofit board matching and training. And she is somebody who has a really nice set of credentials that you'll see in the show notes. But what I like here is that her professional mission is to live at the intersection of the public and private sectors working to foster effective, equitable, and inclusive leadership. So Whitley, you talked a lot about the why. So then you said the other thing that really thwarts boards is how do I get started? And my listeners have just perked up. They are really, really hungry to know how to get started and what you've learned about what what kind of works and what kind of doesn't. Yeah. Well, I'll start by speaking to a challenge that we know is true for many organizations across the U.S., which is that their boards are largely white and they struggle to recruit professionals of color onto the board. And they've identified that perspective or those perspectives are ones that they could benefit from and that their organizations could benefit from. So I think one approach that I've seen nonprofits take to building their boards, and certainly the most common approach that we hear about, is doing that through building, through a Uh, relying on their existing networks where board members are recruiting individuals who they know well, who are likely to have similar stories, to come from similar backgrounds, maybe to hold similar positions onto the board. And this creates a really homogenous board. Community Wealth Partners found in 2015 that 75% of white Americans had no minorities in their network. Can you imagine? 75%. And then if we rely on those networks to build our boards, it's no surprise that we struggle with recruiting professionals of color onto our boards. And so my first tip is to begin to think outside of your networks. Begin to think about the places where candidates are, where these candidates that you're really targeting for your board are, and go to them instead of expecting them to come to you. So your organization might create a board posting and and post that in a university alumni group or in a specific LinkedIn channel. And that can be great, but those spaces sometimes are spaces of inherent privilege. And so we have to begin to think about where are some of the community members that we're looking to bring onto our board kind of already circulating? And then how can we become, how can we form authentic connections and relationships with those communities as well? So thinking about faith communities that might be in your neighborhood, 
thinking about community leaders, formal and informal community leaders that have quite a bit of influence or power in the community, and starting with a relationship instead of a proposal. When we begin to form connections with these groups, it's really, it'll be a lot easier to say, this is what we do. We're interested in learning more about what you do. If anyone is ever interested in learning more about our work, we would be happy to invite them. And to, through that relationship, identify, you know, really committed volunteers or really interested people who could serve on the board, as opposed to going to professional network of Black accountants and just making a post out of nowhere for an organization that no one's ever heard of and expecting everyone to jump on it. So forming those authentic connections, going to new networks, and then thinking about the entire recruitment process. So really from the very beginning, actually, before I should have started here, before you even go out to connect with people who are outside of your networks, really designing a process that centers diversity, equity, and inclusion at each step. So we talked about the importance of having a nominating committee that represents a, a, a range of identities and experiences. And then also thinking about what kinds of goals are we setting? How are we going to hold ourselves accountable through our board development process to ensure that we actually arrive at the outcomes that we're looking for? Now, I would encourage you as you set goals to not box yourself in, but to set goals around the types of perspectives that you think that you're looking to bring onto the board, as opposed to you know, exactly what a person look like. So it's interesting. What's funny is sometimes we connect with not our nonprofit partners through board lead and part of our application invites them to describe an optimal candidate for their board. And we see a whole range of things, but you wouldn't believe the, the types of descriptions that we've gotten for this kind of unicorn candidate. Sometimes our nonprofit partners will name them. So they'll say, Sally is a lesbian lawyer who enjoys hiking and spent time growing up in these mountains and would be interested in volunteering her time with these kids that are growing up in the same mountain. And it's funny. We always get a chuckle out of it. But I think the, the point is when we're describing an optimal candidate to, to leave the door kind of open to everyone who might be interested in serving our organization and really looking for ways that they can help us meet our goals. So what would be a good example? What, what would, would be a good example of something that you'd read on an application where you'd say, that person really gets it? Yeah, we would suggest saying something like, we're looking for board members who are drawn to young people who are passionate about their potential and are looking for ways to invest in them over time. Board members, we would prioritize board members who have worked with young people before or who have grown up in communities similar to the community where that organization is located and who are really looking to become deeply involved in the governance of the organization and dedicate the time and the energy and resources to achieving our mission. Okay, those are different. The other thing I, I feel like, and I, I wonder about your experience about this too, is the difference between a lead and a prospect, mm. right? And the notion that this is an intentional process that you that actually takes time. And so the community leader you described a few minutes ago might actually not, for a whole host of reasons, be a good prospect. You're actually trying to build a relationship with that person so that that person better understands the role your organization plays in the community and that your organization is on that person's radar screen in a way that you might not have before. And one of the things I think people miss in board recruitment is that that prospecting, that talking to leads with people like that community leader grows your footprint, right? Is that all of a sudden this community leader with all these networks, whether it actually results in an additional board member or not, you're on that person's radar screen and in their part of their network in a way you weren't before. So it is a, yet another way that you can be a very effective ambassador for the organization as opposed to a fisherman, right? Right? You're not in the fishing business. I, I mean, you, you are and you're not, but you're also in the business of the more people that know about your organization, 
interact with really wonderful people that are part of your organization, the more they want to get involved too. Yeah, exactly. And if this sounds daunting to any executive director that's listening to think about having one-on-one conversations with anyone who could potentially ever be interested in your organization, one thing that I'd remind listeners of is that it's the board's responsibility to build the board. And so the board should really be leading this effort. And that board members, there are far more board members than there are executive directors with each organization. And so really lean on your board to cultivate those relationships. Yep. I couldn't agree with you more. Let's talk about one of the elephants in the middle of the room, which is the the fundraising obligation of a board member. And you and I have both experienced those words that come out of people's mouths that are just sort of horrifying about, I can't diversify my board because I need wealthy or wealth adjacent people. And so Talk a little bit about the expectations of a board member to give or get financial resources and what you've seen in terms of the creativity that can be out there that can, yeah, that, that, that can really take this on. Yeah. Well, the first thing I'd say is that this is not a diversity issue. This is a culture and class issue. Giving and fundraising requirements are not preventing people of color from joining the board. They're prohibitive to anyone who doesn't have the means to give at that level or who has not been socialized to give in that way. And so I think it's really important to reconsider and redefine what it means to give to be inclusive. It's also, you know, it is important to be cognizant of the distribution of wealth in this country, but we do want to do so without making assumptions about all people of color. Dr. Tyrone McKinley Freeman um, is with the Lilly Family School of Philanthropy and studies African-American philanthropy and has actually found that African-American philanthropy accounts for an increasing amount of charitable giving, and Black families have given a greater percentage of their wealth to the social good sector than any other group. So the question is, how do we not lose the potential or potential board candidates on rigid giving and fundraising expectations that don't account for the variety of ways that individuals and communities engage in giving and resource development for an organization. And in order to do this, I would encourage boards to consider barriers to participation that might not need to be there. I certainly do not advocate for setting a different standard for board members of color than for other board members. That is not equitable. But there are creative ways to find board members to give, to leverage their strength, and to channel their passion for the mission of the organization to support the fundraising effort. And one example that we've come across comes from an organization that's based in Chicago. It's an arts organization that's actually developed a point system. So for example, they say every board member each year is expected to reach 15,000 points in contributions. Every dollar that they give and fundraise is a point, but they can also earn points for things like chairing a task force or identifying a new board member or giving or donating in-kind contributions. Each of those, and it'll vary by organization depending on what that organization needs and how it assigns value. Basically though, that allows every board member to be held to kind of the same standard of contributions, but to do them in ways that are beneficial to the organization. And again, really deeply rooted in what that board member does well. Now, I do think that the giving and fundraising and resource development is a, an, a excuse me an important responsibility for all board members to engage in and so i don't say this to relieve board members of contributing to this effort but i might think about fundraising as an ecosystem and look for ways for each board member to kind of plug in to leverage their strengths to be challenged and to grow but to contribute to the overall effort as opposed to being forced to kind of participate in fundraising in very traditional ways that have not been inclusive of folks of different backgrounds i wonder too i hadn't really thought about this before but so go back to my example about the community leader as a lead and not a prospect and I'm a board member and I am, you know, and I, I need to garner points in a different way from how much money I give, right? And I cultivate a kick-ass relationship with this community leader that, that drives to not just a board member, but maybe money from the city or the state 
or something like that because I have impressed that community leader. And that gift might not come right away, and I might not even ask for it, right? It may come, and you wonder, gee, how did it come? And someone might say, well, actually, Joan's been actually nurturing that relationship with community leader fill-in-the-blank for like a year. And so yeah. I think that there's also a way of thinking about this that I know executive directors are so driven by their annual budgets, and it isn't always attractive, let me just say. And, you know, there's, there's an argument that, may, that to be made that I'm on a board for a term, and during that term, I'm an ambassador that cultivates, nurtures relationships, and some of them are going to pan out in all kinds of different ways I didn't even necessarily expect. Yeah. Yeah. And, and really thinking about, I, I love this idea of, of stepping back and not necessarily connecting this to like a budgeting cycle or a fiscal year, but really thinking about what is the legacy that I'm leaving after this three-year year turn, term is up on the board? How many friends have I created for this organization? How many yeah. long-term relationships have I built that are ultimately going to be more beneficial to the organization over time than my ability to bring in this one-time $10,000 check. Yep. And I just, I, this is someplace where I think so many executive directors just get it plain wrong. They believe is, 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 you know, oh, should we share the Excel spreadsheet of how much money people have given or got, gotten during a course of a year? No, but <laughs> not because it's private, but because it's short-sighted. It's transactional, right? Mm -hmm. I bring a lot of things to the board table if I'm sitting at it. So make sure that my success is measured by all of those things, right? And that's actually what Whitley's getting at here as it relates to the vast array of whether it's lived experience or, you know, sort of adjacent, adjacency to the issue or, you know, some of the things that she's talking about. These things all really matter. We have just a couple of more minutes, but I want to tackle a sizable topic here, which is the topic of values, right? So, so much of this work demands real conversations about values, and I know that you believe that centering values is a vital part of the work. I want you to talk a little bit about that and then bring it to life by talking, talking even about how values show up in the boardroom and board practices. So people can sort of see the sort of the existential and the more tangible. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, values drive our work. They help us make decisions. They communicate to the world what's important to us. And so aligning on them is really important for, for the board. We just have to have those conversations and I've had conversations with nonprofits who over the past couple of years have really leaned into what can sometimes be difficult conversations about values and had board members walk away when they realized that there was a misalignment between their personal values and the board's values. So this can be a really hard conversation. If, if you are on the board of an organization that's kind of struggling to have this conversation, maybe there's resistance to aligning on values or talking through how the values of diversity, equity, and inclusion in particular might be centered in this work. I can share Rob Acton, who's CEO of Cause Strategy Partners, had a fireside chat with Ann Wallstead, who was the former CEO of BoardSource in a pandemic year. Now I'm not sure which one it was. <laughs> But there was a question that was raised of how do we bring our board along? How do we have these really important conversations if there is resistance to them? Excellent. And Anne's advice was to start small. Start with your community. Start with your mission. And take a second to take a step back and, and have the board have a conversation about what they're seeing happening in the lives of the people that they're serving. And that's something that I couldn't agree with more. You know, starting a conversation at the systemic level can be overwhelming and really charged, frankly. But if we start the conversation with these are the people that we're serving, these are the experiences that we're having, this is what we need to address in order to be able to deliver our services and to support the community that we care so deeply about, those conversations will go a lot further. In terms of what it actually looks like in the boardroom to center values and conversations, first of all, talking about them, yeah. arriving 
having whether it needs to be a guided conversation by an external facilitator or if this is a conversation that can be guided by the board chair or the executive director, actually having a conversation about what your values are. And then when we think about how they play out, really taking time to think about the processes that your board follows to arrive at outcomes. So for example, thinking about the strategic planning process, Who's involved in that? Are there opportunities for program participants to kind of speak to their experience in the programs? And can the board use that information as it's kind of putting together this plan for the year? When the board is thinking about budgeting, really reflecting on what's an appropriate level of engagement and in, in thinking about how about equity in compensation and not just salary, but thinking about the entire work experience that's had. Now, I, I'll emphasize here that it's really important for the board to stay at an appropriate level here because it really is the executive director's responsibility to kind of make hiring decisions and, and all of that. But there are questions that the board can ask about how decisions are being made, about how staff members are being supported and about the values that are guiding the decisions that are being made internally, that is an, a really appropriate use of board time and power. I Two things I, I want to say in response to all of that. One is that our team has been working with a DEI firm for, you know, it's a journey and it's been 14, 15 months <clears throat> and, and our lead consultant, says DEI is everything and everywhere, that it is fundamentally about creating a true sense of belonging. And so I think about that and I, I now, we're doing performance reviews. What's the DEI lens that HAT has on it, right? You talked mm -hmm. about compensation. Everything we do, there is a lens there is a component of that. And so when you start to think of it that way, you can't not think of it, you can't think of it any other way, actually. So I think that's one thing I wanted to say. The second thing is just my own soapbox about values, that when you get people talking about their personal values, that can be very powerful in then bridging to a conversation about organizational values and how those things align. And I often talk, I talk a lot about how icebreakers get really, really bad raps, and they do because they don't go deep enough. They don't actually tease out of somebody what's real, what's authentic, what they care about, what they value, right? You know, the mission moment, go around the table, the mission moment, the, the thing that you think is some icebreaker because the board chair tells you there's not enough time. Like, sorry, call bullshit on that because if you don't actually dig into the personal values of the people around the table, you're not going to create a cohesive team of people and you're not going to really ignite in them the alignment of that personal value they have with what the values are of your organization. When you do that, the exponential sort of force a board member can have is sort of off the charts. I just don't think we talk about we don't we don't ask board members to kind of go there around what they what they value personally and I think it's really important. It's so important and that's a should be a piece of the conversation but from before they join the board through their very last day of service. It's when having conversations particularly with individuals who represent experiences and identities that have not been represented on the board before to go into those conversations getting a sense of what are you looking to get out of this? How are you looking to advance your personal mission and your values through your board service? Of course, it can't all be focused on that, but it's but we can be so much more effective in designing board service experiences for every board member if we understand what's motivating them. And I really appreciate what you shared about inviting folks to share about their personal values. Yeah, and, and almost inevitably that comes out of them sharing their narratives, right? Yeah. Is that you get people to, you know, I have an icebreaker that I use that I, it's essentially everybody free writes a two-page autobiography. and People hate it until they don't. And then what we do is we facilitate a conversation about what are the common threads between, you know, between Whitley's story and Joan's story. Or, oh my gosh, I had no idea that the first time you stepped in a classroom, you were seven years old. Like, what was that like for you? 
right? It's to really actually deeply engage with your fellow board members. And I can actually just add another statistic is that organizations that go through leadership transitions, the number one thing that screws them up is when the board is not cohesive, when their, mm -hmm. their values are not aligned when they are a collection of individuals. So there's so many different reasons for this, for, for boards to be strong and cohesive, to have shared values. We are just about out of time and I wanna make sure that there isn't any piece of advice that you, we've left on the table that you wanna make sure goes into the microphone, either about uh, advice, about how to approach this, just anything you feel like you wanna just make sure gets out there. Yeah, well, the one the first thing I'll say is that you're not alone. If your if your board is thinking through how to reflect the community that you're serving, how to bring a diverse set of experiences and perspectives onto the board, you're not alone and many organizations name this as their number one challenge on their board. As you continue conversations internally about what this means for your organization, I'd encourage you to think about what barriers there are to participation for the very people that you wish to engage on your board. That work can happen on a homogenous board or on a very diverse board before outreach begins to community members. And so think about, you know, have we just been doing things the way that they've always been done? Are there opportunities for us to make adjustments to make this space one that's inviting and inclusive for the people that we really want to have represented in our boardroom? And reach out for support. There are many organizations out there, like both of ours, that are willing to support your organizations. Absolutely. Absolutely. And we'll have in the show notes, some information about cost strategy partners and about board lead. But it, you know, it is one of the things that I love about my job is that I get to have conversations with other people who are as passionate about your success as I am. And if you walk away, you know, hopefully you walk away with some actionable tips from Whitley today. I can't imagine you wouldn't have but also just walk away with a sense that there are so many people in your court, right? That so many people who are not just counting on your success, but want to be a part of advocating for your success. So indeed you are not alone. Whitley, thank you so much for sharing your insights. Thanks for the work that you do and for, for sharing some of so much wisdom with our, with our listeners today. Thank you, John. It's been so much fun to have this conversation with you and such an honor to be here. Really appreciate it. Well, thank you and keep up the good work. I know that our paths will cross again. And in the meantime, for all of you who are listening, thank you as always for the work that you do. There are so many, many, many of us who admire you greatly and take good care of yourself and we'll see you next time. Thanks so much for spending time with me today. I hope you found the conversation valuable as you navigate the messy world of nonprofits. Check out all my other resources at joangary.com. Hope you find them helpful too. Lastly, thank you for the work you do to repair the world in ways large and small. I'll see you next time.